This week on Miranda Warnings, we talked to Sam Spital, Director of Litigation at the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund about his work protecting voting rights and fighting against voter suppression. The key point is that, you know, in an election with millions of people voting, our elections are safe and secure, and these very, very, very small number of people that manage to uh, get around the system doesn't have any sort of impact on election results. We discuss important voting rights cases that Sam is working on, including the case against the United States Postal Service and the case on behalf of voters in the state of Michigan against Donald Trump and his presidential campaign. We also talk about the continuing consequences of the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County versus Holder, the case that diluted key provisions of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and a partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesslin, Rothenberg, Farley and Mercedes in Albany, New York. This is Miranda Warnings. You have the right to remain listening. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Now, Sam, uh, you've been obviously very busy, especially during the election year 2020. Tell us about uh, some of the some of the cases that you've been working on over this past year regarding uh, the voting voting rights and voter suppression. Yeah, it has been quite a year, I think, for really for everyone for a few different reasons. From the perspective of voting rights, it was such a unique and challenging years for a few different reasons. One, I think, as you indicated in your question, there were so many efforts to make voting more difficult. And then when you overlaid it with the COVID-19 pandemic and real fears about safety for in-person voting, it meant that LDF and other civil rights organizations, we really had a lot on our plate. And we litigated cases uh, in different parts of the country. We had a major case, which is still ongoing against the US Postal Service because of concerns about the way in which some delays at USPS could affect the reliability of delivery of mail-in voting. We also had cases in a number of states about trying to open up access so more people could vote by mail, could vote in other ways where they could maintain social distancing and be safe while they were voting in the middle of a pandemic. So it really was quite an extraordinary year. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, the Postal Service case. Uh, you know, you had made some claims that some changes by the Postal Service uh, were implemented in violation of federal law, uh, yeah. that those changes led to widespread disruptions in mail delivery that uh, risked the de- delay of uh, delivery of mail-in ballots that caused uh, potentially some voter disenfranchisement. So, I mean, obviously you saw this uh, and commenced this case in the summer of 2020 um, in an effort to try to uh, rectify some things before the election. Um, And so I want to ask you about some changes you were able to get, you know, before the election that actually ended up doing doing so good. I know the case is still pending, but but what was the effect pre-election that you were able to have as a result of this lawsuit? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I have to start by saying that when I was thinking about how I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer, I never thought I would have a case against the Postal Service. So it just kind of highlights what an unusual year this has been. 
essentially, over the summer, there were a number of changes implemented by the new Postmaster General, Postmaster General DeJoy, and we had very serious concerns that some of those changes were contributing to a very significant drop-off in the reliability of mail and service, of, of mail delivery. And so, as you said, we filed a case representing, so I work for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, known as LDF. We're actually an entirely separate organization than the NAACP, but we represent the NAACP in this case, along with our co-counsel, Public Citizen. And we filed a case arguing that these changes were made in violation of federal law, as you said, because there wasn't the requisite notice, opportunity for public comment, and that there was a real risk that there would be delays, significant delays that would affect election mail, and that also were affecting people more generally, people in terms of getting access to prescription medication by mail. So there were some other concerns that we had as well. We filed that case. The court in the District of Columbia agreed with us, granted a preliminary injunction. There were some other cases filed as well, including cases filed by a number of states and then some other private parties. What happened before the election was that there was this initial preliminary injunction and the post office did not really comply with that initial preliminary injunction to reverse and suspend some of the changes they had made. And so we then filed a motion to enforce the injunction. And as a result of that motion to enforce, we had a pretty unusual situation where for the week or so before the election, we were having daily conferences before the court and the judge, Judge Sullivan in the District of Columbia, really worked with the parties to implement, to ensure that the Postal Service implemented a number of changes that would really prioritize election mail. And we also were getting data every day about where mail-in ballots were delayed, where things were going more slowly. So we were also able to try to target some of our measures at places that seemed like they were having a harder time getting these mail-in ballots delivered in a timely way. Well, you know, let's talk a little bit about some of the, the issues that were in that case, because yeah. it seemed like even over the summer or even before then, there was this larger concern about there being mail-in ballots. And, you know, there, you know, we had the, the president at the time was somewhat opposed to mail-in ballots. Um, he said they were going to be unreliable. And then it seemed like the Postal Service was, in fact, ensuring or attempting to ensure that it would be unreliable uh, rather than step up and, and perhaps do a better job because now we're all in quarantine and people shouldn't be risking their lives to go vote. Yeah. They seem to have gone in the opposite direction to try to make it more difficult for people to not only vote by mail, but do anything by mail. Yeah, yeah. So I think what you said is illustrative of a couple of unfortunate phenomenon that we saw over the summer. One was this real effort to sort of politicize and to suggest that mail-in voting was somehow unreliable or less secure or more likely to be the subject of voter fraud, none of which is true. Mail-in voting is safe. It is effective. It happens in many states for many years. Uh, you know, thousands of Americans have been voting millions of Americans, I should say, have been voting by mail. And it's a great way to ensure that more people have access to the franchise. And so this summer, we did see changes that were very concerning. 
whatever the motivation for those changes are, and I'm not really in a position to speak to that directly. The well, you're being effect, nice. You're you're being nice, right? So I'll, <laughs> you you tell me what you think, and then I'll tell you what you know what it really is. <laughs> there certainly was a concern that the effect of those changes would lead to disenfranchising people, because the post office's own data showed that they weren't delivering mail on time. And if you're a voter and you send your ballot in a week in advance, even a few days in advance, the post office really should be in a position to make sure that ballot is delivered in time. And so really what that was the whole point of the case was to make sure that the post office would do what we knew they could do and they would take special measures to ensure that those ballots were delivered on time. And I do wanna sort of say one other thing, which is that I think there's perhaps a disconnect sometimes between the leaders of any organization and the people who work for the organization and the women and men who work at the post office, I think have been extraordinary during the pandemic. And I think they were real allies for the American voter throughout the process. So it was really just a question of making sure that leadership had the right policies in place so that the folks at the post office could do what needed to be done. Yes. And I agree uh, as well. And I, I, I was also never saw it coming that the, the post ser- postal service uh, w- would become politicized. Um, let me ask you this about the case, the postal service case, at least. Now we've got a new administration. Um, I presume that they're going to be treating the postal service. We're going to go back to the way we normally treated it, where it would be, you know, nonpartisan. Um, and not used for political purposes. It, it, do, do we still need to have this case, uh, you know, active? And, and what issues need to be addressed now? Yeah, so right now the case is still active. With respect to your question about the administration, the post office does have some level of autonomy from any administration in that the postmaster general is appointed by a board of governors. So, uh, the, and the postmaster general is the person in charge of the post office on a day-to-day basis. So a change in administration doesn't necessarily change the direction of the post office. I think that one of the things that remains concerning is that we had a lot of special procedures that were in place this election, and I think they were enormously effective. Unfortunately, the post office has not yet adopted those procedures to be in place generally. So I think that from an election perspective, it's really important for the post office to adopt procedures so that in election after election, the American people can have confidence that ballots will be expedited, there'll be the use of express mail networks when they need to, that there will be very specific measures in place so that you know if your ballot is mailed in time, it's going to be delivered in time. And so I think that's one of the reasons why the case remains important. The other thing I'll just say briefly is that we're continuing to see real delays in the delivery of mail. And part of that is surely the impact of the pandemic, but we also want to make sure that the post office's policies are consistent with getting mail delivered in a timely way, because during the pandemic, more than ever, people are really relying on the mail for basic needs. Let me ask you a little bit about some of the underlying claims that were made about mail-in ballots, that there was some, you know, some likelihood of of greater fraud if there's mail-in ballots, that there were voting irregularities in in the last election that requires us to to provide different measures for for voting, maybe more restrictive measures. Um, When it appears as though, look, nobody uh, supports voter fraud, nobody supports voter irregularities, 
from all the studies that I've seen, there was nothing uh, different about this last election, uh, perhaps a handful out of millions and millions of voters, um, nothing that would have made any sort of uh, impact. It seems to me that when we hear about, oh, there's voter irregularities and we need more restriction, that that's kind of a code for let's disenfranchise uh, certain people. Uh, what's your thought on, on the level of irregularities that we had? And what's your thought on the motivation for continuing to say that there were irregularities when there weren't? Yeah, I think this is one of the most troubling things about working in this area. The, this is a, a solution in search of a problem. There is no evidence and people look for this all the time. There is no evidence of widespread voting fraud, whether through mail-in balloting or through any other kind of balloting throughout the most recent elections, but also previous elections, elected officials, folks who really study this from across the political spectrum acknowledge the issue of voter fraud in American elections is vanishingly, vanishingly small. There's no evidence of any kind of significant or widespread irregularities, much less that would affect the outcome of any, of any election. And we saw in this most recent election, this very politicized, but also very racialized effort to suggest that there was a widespread problem with irregularities, even without any evidence. Time after time, the allegations of irregularities would be targeted at cities with either predominantly black populations or much larger black or black and Latinx populations compared to a state as a whole. And with these false assertions that, oh, there's widespread fraud in Philadelphia or Milwaukee or Atlanta, again, no evidence whatsoever. And one of the other things that's been very unfortunate is that even in places like Georgia, where the Georgia Secretary of State said, over and over, very clearly, this just isn't true. This just isn't happening. There isn't this evidence of widespread voter fraud. There aren't evidence of irregularities. These claims are just false. And yet, now the Georgia legislature is considering proposals to restrict these measures that expanded access to the ballot. We should all in this country be working to ensure that as many people can vote as possible, that they can vote safely, and to sort of see even those who have recognized that the, there is no evidence of voter fraud to sort of indulge the possibility that maybe we should impose new voter restrictions is quite, quite unfortunate. Quite unfortunate. Uh, it's, it's a little bit more than unfortunate. We're disenfranchising uh, American citizens from, from, from voting. You, you mentioned the, the racial context. I want to talk about another case that you're involved in uh, a little bit here, the the Michigan uh, case against uh, against uh, Trump's and the Trump campaign's effort to overturn uh, the results of, of some of those uh, counties um, specifically targeted counties that were uh, had minorities uh, and said, you know, these counties need we need to throw these counties out. Yeah. The other counties. You know they're okay. So apparently there was there was some unspecified fraud in 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 one county, but not in another county. Um, tell us what's going on in that case. Yeah. So this is a case that we filed on behalf of 
again, on behalf of the NAACP, on behalf of an organization, the Michigan Welfare Rights Organization, and on behalf of some individual voters in Michigan. And the case is addressing this really just extraordinarily disturbing phenomenon where the former president of the United States and other political leaders repeated these false allegations of voter fraud and engaged in this campaign to try to overturn the will of the people by arguing that votes in predominantly or disproportionately Black or Black and Latinx communities should not be counted. And you pointed to some of the kinds of statements that we saw. There was a canvasser, who, someone who was responsible in uh, certifying, I should say, election results in Michigan, who said, well, I'd be willing to certify that Wayne County's results were correct, except for Detroit. And Detroit being the part of Wayne County that is predominantly Black, so she'd be willing to certify the rest of the county that was predominantly white, even though the supposed quote irregularity affected the county throughout in different parts of the county. And even though the irregularity was the kind of ministerial error that could not possibly be the basis, it didn't suggest any voter fraud. And certainly the idea that it would suggest disenfranchising hundreds of thousands of people is, is absurd. And that was one dramatic example. We saw efforts by the president himself in so many different ways, contacting legislators, contacting state and local officials, pressuring them over and over to find votes for him, to throw away votes for other people. And then, you know, of course, culminating in the just shocking events of January 6th, uh, where there was this effort to violent effort to prevent Congress from certifying the electoral will of the American people. So this conduct, people have talked a lot about it and sort of some of the obvious problems that it has raised. What our suit focuses on is how this conduct violates a provision of the Voting Rights Act and also a provision of a law that's known as the KKK Act back in the 1870s in the wake of Reconstruction, which was another period where you saw sort of white supremacist violence and other tactics of pressure and coercion to try to disenfranchise the multiracial results of elections and multiracial kind of coalitions, Congress had to step in and pass this law, the KKK Act, to try to push back against some of that activity. And so the fact that now in 2020, we're relying again on that law shows you where we are and, uh, you know, kind of what, what we need to do. It does. It, it's, it's a very uh, stark example of where we are. I mean, recon the Reconstruction period was a horrible phase in, in our, our country's history. Uh, you know, after the Civil War, uh, where, you know, everyone, black and white, had the right to vote and was provided with the right to vote, we saw, you know, a substantial number of elected representatives uh, being uh, that were uh, African American, and um, people, you know, people of those states didn't like it, and uh, some of them, and uh, you know, the minority that lost uh, decided to take up arms, and it was a terribly uh, violent and ugly yeah. period in which people 
were attacked basically for voting and for winning an election, which is exactly what we saw on January 6th, uh, 2021, which is which is just horrifying. I want to, you know, we, you mentioned January 6th and the, the insurrection that occurred and, and these people were all worked up for, not because of just what happened that day, but for weeks about getting it pounded into their heads that there was this, you know, voter fraud and the election was stolen, which of course was completely untrue. And I just want to talk a little bit about voter fraud. So, you know, it's a felony in this country to engage in voter fraud. And if someone is to engage in voter fraud, let's say they get a mail-in ballot for, you know, their grandmother and they decide to to change uh, or make a vote for that person, that's one vote. You've just committed a felony and there's no way that that's going to change any elections. So you would have to have thousands upon thousands of people coordinating this. Um, can you talk a little bit of just about how unlikely and, and improbable it is that we would have any sort of sub- substantial voter fraud in this country? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you you hit the nail on the head. The idea that there would be some sort of coordinated campaign um, in a in a national election is is uh, it's difficult in the first place. But then there are a number of different measures in place that really prevent fraud. It's not that it's not easy to just uh, get someone else's ballot and mail it in. There are very specific measures that states use to require to ensure that it really is the right person casting the ballot. And I think that I mean Pennsylvania is a good example where I, after this extent search, you know, really trying to uncover anything that anyone could find. I believe they came up with two or three examples of people who had fraudulently cast ballots that should have been cast by someone else. And as someone pointed out, President Trump fully won the fraudulent vote. You know, he all, all right, two or right. three of those ballots were cast for him. Um, the, the key point is that, you know, in an election with millions of people voting, our elections are safe and secure, and these very, very, very small number of people that manage to uh, get around the system doesn't have any sort of impact on no. the election results. And I, the other point I would just really underscore for a second here is that I think that the narrative of voter fraud and the reason why the narrative resonates so well, whether from you know 100 years ago or today, is that it's premised on this idea that you know, certain people don't really deserve to vote. The reason why the rhetoric about cities and fraud really resonates with a lot of people is because they don't really think that Black people, other people of color are full citizens and that it therefore is improper from their perspective for people of color, Black people in particular, to vote, to have decisive votes in the outcome of elections. And I think that's, you know, this is really, it's not really a story about voter fraud. It's a story of racism reflected through the lens of a different narrative. Well, that's certainly true. I mean, but, you know, we, we already fought that battle uh, and, and that's over and we, you know, we need to, we need to move on. I, I think when we're talking about, you know, vo- widespread voter fraud, you mentioned, you know, some of the instances, I mean, when we go vote, it's not, it's not a, some 
uh, you know, omnipresent federal government. Each state uh, controls its voting. Each election district, when when each of us goes and votes, it's uh, some you know uh, some nice uh, man or woman that might be my neighbor. It's not some uh, you know foreign person that d- doesn't know anybody, and so. This, th- these, the people that run our elections are are each one of us, uh, and so there's really that provides, I think, a bit of a failsafe um, that these are people that are involved in the community and are are for, for in the most part not not partisan. Thank goodness. Um, let me let me ask you about uh, a case that was a couple of years back that I know you were involved in that still I think today has had an impact on uh, voting rights. Uh, and that's the, that's the case of Shelby County versus Holder. Um, I know that you were uh, involved uh, for one of the parties in that case. And, and tell us a little bit about that case and, and why it still matters. Yeah. So I think the place to start is with the Voting Rights Act of 1965 which is widely considered to be the nation's most effective civil rights statute. Before the Voting Rights Act, a number of states have been so successful in keeping Black people off of voter rolls that there was just, there was massive disenfranchisement, massive racist disenfranchisement. And the Voting Rights Act substantially eliminated those barriers, but Voting discrimination has been unfortunately ingenious, and it's been described as sort of a bit of a -a whack-a-mole. So when one technique for disenfranchisement has been defeated, another one comes up. And there are all different kinds of voting-related discrimination. You make it more difficult for somebody to get to a polling place by moving the polling place that had been in a predominantly Black neighborhood across town. You do something so you change the lines so that even if people of color are able to vote, they don't have a chance to actually elect a candidate of choice. They're just, they really have been an incredible array of measures designed to prevent Black people in this country from having a full and fair opportunity to participate in the political process. So one of the things that was so effective of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was there was this provision, Section 5. And that provision applied only in those states that had particularly difficult, particularly bad histories of voting discrimination. And in those states, before a state could implement a voting change, so let's say that a state or a locality wanted to move a polling place from one area to another area, they'd have to submit the change to either the Department of Justice or to a court, and the court would have to say, yeah, this change is not discriminatory. If the change was discriminatory, the court or the Department of Justice would say, no, you, you, can't, you can't do that unless you want to try to litigate about it. Um, and so what the Supreme Court did in that Shelby County case, and one other sort of background point, in 2006, it's amazing to think that was only 15 years ago, Congress, by a vote of 98 to 0 in the Senate and 390 to 33 in the House, they reauthorized this provision of the Voting Rights Act. They said, you know, this is still needed, even this is still needed today. In 2013, a very bitterly divided Supreme Court, five to four, said, no, it's not still needed. And we're going to sort of second guess Congress's judgment that it is still needed over a very powerful dissent by Justice Ginsburg. 
Chief Justice Robert wrote the opinion for the court, and he said essentially things have changed, the South has changed, we don't need this provision anymore the way that we once did. The response was swift and immediate, and I think it essentially, sadly, gave lie to Chief Justice Roberts's optimism about how much things had changed, with a number of states immediately implementing discriminatory measures. North Carolina, for example, implemented a host of measures that made it more difficult for people to vote, which a federal court later said were clearly targeted with near surgical precision at making it more difficult for Black people to vote. So, and that's just one example. And so now, though, that this key provision of the Voting Rights Act isn't there anymore, voting rights advocates, voting rights lawyers have to rely on other measures, and we can't challenge the provisions until they're after they're already in place. So even in, and we've won a lot of these cases. We've won cases in North Carolina, we've won cases in Texas, we've won cases you know, in, in a number of jurisdictions formally covered by Section 5, but now those measures are often in place for many years, and so they disenfranchise people and they otherwise discriminate during that period of time. Um, and we're also about to enter a new cycle of redistricting. Every 10 years, the census provides new data, there's redrawing district lines. And so this is going to be the first period in a long time when this redistricting process is happening without the protections of Section 5. So it's going to be even more challenging for those of us who are trying to push back against voting related discrimination. So, you know, uh, just to, you know, to summarize the, the, the uh, uh, Shelby County case. So for those states that had a history of discrimination in voting, they had to, if they made a change, uh, they underwent some scrutiny. And then in, in the Supreme Court case, uh, Chief Justice Roberts said, well, the, you know, the racial disparity that was compelling evidence uh, before justifying this remedy um, is no longer present, right? I mean, so we don't need it. Yep. Um, but as part of that case, he also, uh, they also said, you know, Congress potentially could come up with some other remedy. And, you know, at the time, you said 2016, uh, we didn't have a Congress that was uh had a propensity to do that necessarily. Do you think we might be seeing something going forward in Congress that, that might uh, help remedy the issue that, that you've uh, addressed? I certainly hope so. I think that, and I hope so, I, I hope that this doesn't have to be seen as a partisan issue. You know, when you think about the, the 2006 Congress that passed that reauthorized the Voting Rights Act, that was, and uh, President then George Bush signed it. Again, overwhelming bipartisan majority. This really should never have been seen as a partisan issue. This is just an issue about making sure that everyone has a fair opportunity to vote and, and participate in the political process. There are uh, laws pending or proposed laws pending in Congress now that would restore much of the, much of what was lost with the Shelby County decision. And I think that the events of the last year really should show all of us that it is urgent for Congress to act. It is urgent for Congress to restore the Voting Rights Act and to take additional steps so that all Americans can vote freely, fairly. No one should have to wait in extremely long lines to vote. No one should face you know, unreasonable burdens. No one should face indignities. 
And everyone should have a fair chance not only to vote, but to know that they have a fair opportunity to fully participate in the political process to elect candidates of choice. Well, uh, Sam Spital, I want to thank you for your work in this area. I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts with us on Miranda Warnings here on this very important issue. We do have a lighthearted feature uh, called Music Book or Movie. So uh, share with us uh, what's helping you get through these days, Sam. Yeah. So uh, I'm a big fan of mystery novels. Um, I think they're, they're kind of my escape. Uh, particular sort of uh, British mystery novels, British, I guess we're including Scotland too, uh, a huge fan of Anne Cleves and Val McDermott. And so they, they've been some of the authors that have uh, helped, me, helped me get through it. Very good. So we've got some reading material to, to take us away from, from all this. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It was really a pleasure to get to talk to you today. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for your work. Uh, you stay well, and uh, we look forward to uh, successful resolutions of, of these uh, very important cases that you're working on. Great. Thank you. Take care. If you like Miranda Warnings, you have the right to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.